Welcome to the sixth episode of the American Years Revisited podcast. I'm Kate Simpson. This episode features an interview with Don Gable. Don was a diver on the Holy Lock. Don tells us about his life starting in Hawaii and then traveling to Italy and finally settling in Scotland at the Holy Lock. His account of life above and below the waves paints a very clear picture of operations at the base and how so many servicemen came to choose Danoon as their home. I was three months old when we moved to Hawaii. I grew up in Oahu, just outside of Pearl Harbor. It was 63, I think it was, when I left there. Went to Illinois because my father was in the military. So I was in Illinois, then Virginia, and then South Carolina. And that's where I finished high school and got drafted. While I was in the military, I spent four years in the States. And the rest of it was over here in Europe. Like I said, I met my wife at the time was in Naples, Italy. I was stationed in Naples, Italy. That was 72 to 74. And then 83 to here. When I retired, I was medically retired out in 91. And I put in to reside here in the UK, got permission, resident alien. That was in 91, 92 when I got permanent residence to stay here. When you were in the Mediterranean in, in Italy, were you in the attached to the Sixth Fleet? Oh, yes. Yes. Uh, here again, I was a diver. LST was called uh, USS Graham County, uh, 1176. It was called the AGP, Auxiliary Gun Patrol. It was an old LST that used to come in during the Second World War, and the bows opened up, and a t- ramp came down, and tanks and everything drove off of them onto the beach. But the bow doors were welded shut. The tank deck was turned into a machine shop for patrol gunboats, PD, PD boats. We had, there was four of them there in Naples. Back in the 70s, there was the Yom Kippur War, seven-day war. I spent a lot of time out at sea during that time frame, going from one patrol gunboat, it pull out to sea for seven days and come back next to the tender. And then I go from that one across to the other patrol gunboat. And as soon as I was aboard, then we went out to sea for another seven days. So I alternated seven days at sea on different little patrol gunboats. The other diver that was stationed there did the same thing because there was always two out at sea. I was on one, he was on the other. I remember coming up on Russian tankers and we pretend like we were fishing, like a small fishing boat. And then all of a sudden, we're going in excess of 25, 30, not speeding up next to these tankers with torches and trying to find out what's on top of these tankers. Here again, that was in the 70s. They were moving things from the Black Sea into the Africa area. Yeah, we had an interesting time over there in Naples. We sold a couple of those to the Yugoslav Navy. So I was one of the first Americans to be in split Yugoslavia since the Second World War, largely working on dives. Uh, used to do a lot of dives there in Turkey, Izmir, and along the Turkish coast. Here again, that's where some of the missile cycles used mm. to be, the Air Force and that, that were moved out. So, yeah, we did a lot of things back then that can't really talk about. <laughs> Here's a daft question. Is there actually a difference? Can you feel a difference in the temperature of the water between oh, yes. Italy and Scotland? Yeah, is it right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's cold or freezing. One, <laughs> the deeper you go, the colder it gets. 
to believe it or not, the Mediterranean is only two or three degrees warmer than Holy Lock is. You have the Gulf Stream comes along the coast mm -hmm. here. Mm -hmm. That's why it doesn't freeze up along this coast. Mm -hmm. Okay. And the water is a lot warmer on the West Coast than it is on the East Coast here in the UK, Scotland, because of the Gulf Stream. There, you can actually, you can actually feel a more of a thermal climb. The deeper you go, the colder it got. Here in the Holy Lock, during the summer, the divers would sunbathe. We would we didn't want to get in the water. We'd get that guy in the water, let him swim, and I can sunbathe talk, while I'm up there tending the divers. So during the summer, it was harder to get the guys in the water. It was easier to get the guys to dive in the winter months because the water was warmer than the air temperature. So you used to get in the water just to get warmer. <laughs> Than sitting on the surface holding a hose for somebody else, you know. The end of '90, my retirement came through February of '91, and I just stayed here. I was back in Washington D.C. where they did operation on my foot and and rebuilt my foot and that, and gave me my medical retirement. But my family still stayed over here when I had that done. Before I had the operation, I was planning on retiring and staying here in Scotland because I enjoy the country. It's beautiful country. You got hill walking, you go fishing, you got, it's all right here. You know, it's a beautiful country. And I love the people around here. So when it came time to retire, it was oh great. I just got medically retired and I stayed here. My son, who was born here, because he played football, what we call football here, soccer in the States, he got a 100% scholarship and went back to the States and played football or soccer for Northern Illinois University with a 100% scholarship, which they don't give to US citizens, but he was dual, dual national and he got to have that. Now my grandson plays professional football here. So my family is here. My immediate family and, and my grandchildren are here. Mm -hmm. So I'm gonna stay here. This <laughs> I have more of my family here than I do in the States. So why should I go back there? I'm still interested in hearing from the Americans. What did we do that found you looking at us as much as say, really? Is that what they do here? The things that we saw as completely normal behavior that you thought was really strange behavior. I'm a diver. Sorry. <laughs> They're all the same. <laughs> well, actually, it was the number of pubs and you can drink from pub to pub. You can walk down the street, drinking from one pub to the next pub, the pub crawls. I didn't have that where I was growing up. The pubs were a further away from where people were living. They weren't in the housing estate areas. So that was a big seemed like, change. seemed like in America, everybody made a lot more money, but no one could ever afford to go out. And here people went out regularly to pubs and regularly to eat and stuff, you know? Where I was from, it was small community. When we lived in... Hawaii, it was, you have the small community that we were at. And then in Illinois, when we moved to Illinois, it was outside of Chicago. I was, it was in military housing. So it was growing up and I, we really didn't have much. It was Charleston is when I turned 18, because you can't drink until you're 21 in the States. So it wasn't until Naples before I was actually drinking in the pubs. <laughs> So from Naples, Italy to here, there wasn't much of a cultural shock to me because I was already in Europe previously. It's just I could understand the people a little bit easier here than I could in Italy. 
same language, just we pronounce it differently. <laughs> as far as the Nooney, like I said, it was the, the amount of pubs. I mean, you can go, you can't even go a half a block without hitting one, another pub from one to the other. Five or six just on the main street of town. So it was like I said, when it first came here, it was it was a drinking from town to town. I got here in August and my one of my first walks down Argyle Street and was, you know, Captain Ed's and upstairs. Yeah. A pint come out, not in the glass, just dumped on me. Now I don't think they targeted me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just hoping it came out of a glass, not out of somebody's throat. And the window must have been open. Yeah, I hope. The main thing when I first come over here was was the the town drinking from top but it was the cowl games air time frame as well which was you added to the atmosphere of the small little town and bagpipes still put a a little twing in the back of my hairs and i'm not even scotty <laughs> yeah <laughs> but i do enjoy it here the first time i actually was in Danoon, like i said i came from naples italy and i was being transferred to washington dc so i was up in glasgow I was with my in-law family at the mm -hmm. time, and it was my brother-in-law who brought me down here to to Sandbank, and it was the uh, Oak Bank Hotel right. out in Sandbank. Okay, and he knew the people there, but my brother-in-law kind of got me familiar with the area. Now he was Ian Campbell from Steelers Wheel. Oh yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, that was my brother-in-law. So he was pretty well familiar with a lot of the people here. So drinking up there with, in Glasgow, the month or so with my brother-in-law and his, my father-in-law, the noon wasn't that much of a big difference between the two. So I was kind of with family when I first came to Danoon. So I wasn't like a single sailor coming over here for the first time. You had to be crazy to get in a big hard hat helmet and jump over the side two, three hundred feet down, knowing that if the air didn't come down to you, you weren't coming back up. 285 pounds in helmet, lead, all that weight on you. And if you went to the bottom, you couldn't come back up. So you had to be kind of crazy to do that, knowing that it's a one way trip if something did go wrong. But lucky with the training, nothing goes wrong. <laughs> Or should nothing go wrong? <laughs> you do have a few incidences. But here, because you were the bottom of the lock or wasn't that deep, so you didn't have to work. Most of the jobs that we did here, like I said, were, were security swims, swimming the ships in while they're here for the week, swimming them four hours before they left the lock to go on patrols to make sure we didn't put any flanges on. Now, a submarine is what they call a sub-safe system. There's a two-valve protection. So you have the outer submarine hull, and there's an opening to that hull. If they were working on the third valve in, they can shut the outer two valves and work on it perfectly safe. If they were working on valve one or two, we would put a flanking flange on the outside of that piping so they can rework on valves one and two in that piping system without flooding the submarines. So most of our jobs were maintenance on the outside. We had to check to make sure there was no foreign objects, <laughs> foreign objects. During the supplies, when they were bringing on supplies to the submarines, they'd be a case of hot dog, uh, hamburgers, and all of a sudden they'd go over the side and in case of lobster, it'd fall over the side. And of course we were diving on the side. 
So we'd bring up a few of these cases. Now, two or three cases of lobster go over the side. We'd bring up one case and one case went to the, to the dive boat, hamburger or whatever. One time this big ham fell over the side and it went down far enough and we didn't know it, but it came in and it swept up. Now, underneath the missile tubes, there's a valve, probably about a foot, maybe 18 inches, foot and a half in diameter. And one of the hams got caught up inside that. So as we were doing our swim, of course, it wasn't supposed to be there. And we're not supposed to touch it. So we had to call the EOD divers over to go get dressed up, go down and swim it just to pull out a section of ham. Now, they didn't like us for that, but we were doing our job. <laughs> it's not supposed to be there. It's a bomb. And what do you do with bombs? You get another crazy dude to go down and deal with it. <laughs> Does that tell you about mentality? <laughs> Some admiral's briefcase went over the side and fell. And they wanted us to come find it. We said, we, I said, no, because that's not personal property. We're not to do that and everything. Well, lucky enough, we were working on a propeller change at the time. <laughs> And I saw it fall. So I had one of the divers who was already in the water swim over and he caught it on the way down and he brought it back to the dive boat. So when the captain and everybody come down to get a briefing of what was going on with the thing, the Admiral asked if we could find it. And I said, no, we can't really ask personal stuff. But I ended up giving him the briefcase. It was pretty good because he bought us a party. <laughs> we had a good little party with the Admiral's expense out of it. So, yeah, it was quite nice little job. Yeah, that was one of the good times. So a lot of it was really maintenance material. Propeller changes. It was They haven't done a propeller change here for years. And that was my forte. I actually got a Navy Achievement Medal because I trained not only the divers, but shot 38 on propeller changes because we did one in the dry dock and we did one waterborne at the same time and nobody knew how to do it other than me. And I wrote the cute quality assurance package to do that. Well, they flew a guy in, a chief from the States over, and he looked at my package and let me just run with it. We did both jobs, saving time. So I got a Navy Achievement Medal out of that. But propeller changes, uh, like I said beforehand, there was a SPM, secondary propulsion motor. It's an electric motor. It spins 360 degrees, and it's using its age to slow in and tie it up. But they can also use it for run silent. They can maneuver without turning over the big propeller and making cavitational noise. We replaced one of those while it was in the water. First time it's been done, waterborne vice in the dry dock. There's been a lot of controversy over the years about what's actually down there in the loch. You might know a bit of what's been thrown over there? I've seen a few things that's gone down. Are they are they part of um, are they part of uh, the secrecy of uh, that you? This, the, the no, uh, that's uh, anything that caused could cause harm or considered a weapon was found. So there was shotguns that were dropped off by the submariners or forty-five pistols or whatever that were falling off the side, we had to go down and find them. Anything of major importance for submarines, we had to go to the bottom and find it. 
a case of paint that fell off the edge of the dry dock was not important enough for us to go find. We knew where it was at. We didn't go down and bother picking it up because we were too busy doing other things. So there was pallets of paint. There was a car. There was a tugboat even sank. The tugboat was a British boat, though, that was coming in, and it sank. There's all these stories here that all this nuclear waste has been thrown over the side and stuff. No. In my periscope shop, I was I had a radiation casualty team. We're all dressed up in these yellow suits. And anything, if they were moving something this big that was anything to do with nuclear, there was like an escort in front, guards with it and behind it. These people people didn't walk around the ship with these big valves, radioactive valves, flinging them over the side. So anything of importance we brought up. And a lot of times. It was easier finding it right away. For example, if you if you drop an iron plate and it hits the water, it'll give you an imprint in the mud and silt at the bottom before you touch the bottom. So you're looking at it for the imprint of where that item is before you even get down there. Because once you touch it, it's cloud. It's pitch black. I mean, cloud. You can't see anything. So you're really kind of hovering above it and trying to find out where it went in before you actually started digging for it. And we found a lot of the materials that they needed to find. And it was right after they lost it is when we got it, such as the Admiral's briefcase. <laughs> I came across a cutting, a quote from an ex-commander who said that he wanted to apologize to the Cowell population for what they left in the loch. My father-in-law, who was also a diver, said that it was absolute BS, as he put it. At the time, it intrigued me when I came across. I've never seen it since. So you would say that is that that's just not true. There's nothing there that would be harmful. Well, the only thing that would be harmful would be, like I said, the paint that fell over. Because they were all in canisters. If, they, if the paint come out, you have the oil aspect of the paint. So there's a chemical aspect. But... A lot of that stuff, when they left, they went out with barges and they picked up a lot of it. Right. Someone found out that I, I did retire and I was a Navy. So and I drove the area. So it was uh, the Scotsman in Edinburgh. The newspaper came down and wanted to do an interview. They wanted me to go out to the lock. But they were more interested in what we did for radioactivity throughout the lock. I showed them where we did. It was usually every three four months. We usually try to do it four months, okay, because it was just a pain for us to go and do it. Sometimes it was pretty good fun because it depends on if there was submarine crews or not. We used to go along the Holy Lock Pier and pick up scallops. Of course, look for all the, the, the British coins that the submariners didn't want to take back home, and they throw it over the side of the pier. So we were picking up scallops. Uh, we were picking up different types of shellfish. Uh, I can't remember what you call them here, but we were finding uh, different types of sea life here. Clapadoos. There we go. Clapadoos. There's a word, Margaret, that I forgot. Clapadoos. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so we were getting different clap, and there's a lot of good clapadoos in the Holy Law. So we were taking those, and we were taking mud samples and everything else about every four or five months just to check for radiation in the surrounding waters. And that's what the Scotsman wanted to know. Were we doing things like that? Yeah, we were. 
what had but gone over the side. Someone has a coffee cup and didn't want to take it back to the, so they drop it over the side. So there's a lot of coffee cups and this and that. So Things that have fallen over where the, the crane, the straps or the whatever broken are falling off the side while replenishment. But it was nothing majorly dangerous to the society, to the area. When you took these measurements, were they safe, were they safe limits? Oh, yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, we had, every time we got in the water, we had a decimeter, a little pocket decimeter. Tells you how much radiation you get into. When you're doing a submarine swim, it's black. It's round hole and it's black. So you got to kind of swim two sides. You can only see part of it. So you can swim down one side of it and then you swim back the other side, coming back up on the, to check, to check the whole thing. But when you get that to a certain area, you come right into where the reactor compartment is. Inside the submarine, you're protected. There's concrete, your protection. It's a five-sided cube, uh, five-sided, because the bottom half is just the metal. It's not a big solid cube there. So if they had anything happen, they would have a radio meltdown. It would fall out the bottom of the submarine. So that area there, there is no protection. So we had to lose pocket decimeters. You're supposed to drop down about 10, 15 feet, swim, and then come back up and finish your swim. And a lot of times you kind of go into that area and then drop down. Do you glow in the dark, though, Don? Do you glow in the dark? No comment. As a matter of fact, I'll answer that, Anne. Yes, I do glow in the dark. It's my tattoo. Which some of it is fluorescent paint. <laughs> fluorescent. So I do kind of glow at night, okay? <laughs> the area that the tenders and that were tied up is known as a Z-birthing. A Z-birthing is for nuclear birthing, where nuclear vessels can tie up. That area was cleaned and swept sonar-wise before they even registered. So there was nothing there underneath the tenders, especially underneath the dry dock. The Holy Lock is kind of about 80, 90 feet throughout. Most of it is kind of okay. But there's a section over there, Paradise Bay. That's where the, the dry dock used to be when it first came over here. Because there was a hole 129 feet deep. So you had plenty of water there to go up and down. And it wasn't until later when they moved the tender to make it easier. Because they had to go from the tender to the dry dock with all the boat units. That's when they brought the dry dock in. And so you came out to the YFMB 31, the YFMB 32 next to it with the dry dock and the tender. So you came out to one place and you go either direction and still within the whole site one. So it wasn't until later that they'd moved the dry dock in after they made sure there was plenty of room for it to drop and take its cargo and come back up. The only time I went underway with the tender, because we just did this propeller change on it, and we wanted to hear cavitation, they wanted me there. We went out, and like I said, we were the only ship in the area, and they actually submerged and resurfaced next to the tender. That's the only time I know of where a submarine has actually, and they were taking videos in that for U.S. Navy purposes, but it was one of the few times where I actually visually saw a submarine leave the surface and then come back up again because part of that was what we i had to deal with as as a submarine expert you might say 
every time a dr submarine pulled into dry dock, they had submarine salvage inspections that were performed on it. And I was a senior submarine salvage inspectors. I did most of the salvage inspections of the submarines while I was here, 75 onwards. There's things on the surface, little valves on the surface, two per compartment, one low, one high. If a submarine sinks, it's us divers that would go down and take off the cap and put on a hose and lock it in place. When the two are locked to place, we would pump air into the high, force water out the low until air comes out. Then we knew that compartment was water-free or airtight. That was part of the submarine salvage sections that I had to inspect. They also had buoys to help the loved ones back home. The submarines had different buoys. They had one forward, one aft, international orange, and they had a jack on the inside where they pump it, and it was held in a by a piston. And by jacking it, it'd have to move the piston out, and the buoys would float to the surface so us divers could cut the wire, hook it up to our salvage vest, and we'd actually pull ourselves down to the hatch, open it up. We'd pass in lead weights. Submariner would come into our rescue chamber, and we'd go back to the surface. So it was for submarine salvage from the crew. Now, these buoys were put there to help the loved ones, but they'd rattle and make noise when they were underway, cavitation, and they could be heard. So they took a one-inch little piece of metal plate, and they welded it over the top. <laughs> so they wouldn't move. And if you popped it, they wouldn't pop up. And they would be frozen there for, for two or three years sometimes before they'd act. Then that's when they restarted these investigations. Or I should say inspections. So part of my job was to have those little plates cut off, hook up a crane to the buoy, and have them jacket to make sure the buoys and everything still work properly and then put them back in. And once I did the test, then they can weld them back up again because I can say that those buoys worked. <laughs> uh, to me, it seemed like a ridiculous job checking the buoys working just to have them weld them back down in place again. But it was part of the necessity of keeping the family members knowing that if something happened, we could go down and get them. That was Don Gable's account of aspects of his life here on The Holy Lock. Join us next time when you can hear Don and other people sharing their memories of life at service and on shore. You have been listening to the American Years Revisited podcast. For more information and further episodes, go to our website, americanyearsrevisited.wordpress.com. Thank you for listening. See you next time. Mm -hmm.